You've just heard from some of our students who recognize that the task to which they are called is not an easy one. And it really is not. We're called to get the gospel to two billion people who have little or no access to scriptures. 7,000 languages in the world, 1,800 still awaiting the beginning of a project to translate the gospel into that language. On our continent, it is it's estimated that some 8,000 churches may close their doors in the next year. And this challenge is, is a tough one. It, it really is hard because God has called us to go to a people, to take the gospel to, to people that the Bible so often describes for us in terms of spiritual warfare. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 tells us that we're taking the gospel to people who are following the prince of the power of the air. Acts 26, 18, Jesus calling the apostle Paul, and Paul telling his testimony, gives these words of Jesus that, that he is to go to reach people who are held in darkness and under the power of Satan. Colossians 1.13 tells us that prior to God's transferring us to his kingdom, we were in the domain of darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. We're trying to reach people who are blinded by the God of this world. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. We're called to get the gospel to people who are in the devil's snare. Caught. And thus, that's, that's our challenge, whether it's here in our city, on our continent, or the farthest part of the world, that's our calling. And the enemy thus aims his arrows at us, at our students, our faculty, the principalities and powers going about seeking whom they may devour, seeking to destroy our homes, our witnesses, and this battle is real, and it should not surprise us when we hear the stories of our brothers and sisters who are doing the work of God, and they're going, and they continue to go, and it's hard. Shouldn't surprise us, because the Bible describes this task as war. And I think about that as I think about our calling to prepare men and women to go to the ends of the earth. And, and I ask the question, how, how do we best prepare them for this battle, for the reality of this war? And there is a text in Acts 19 that I've thought about for years. And my wife, Pam, will tell you, anybody who knows me knows that this text is one that haunts me and challenges me and keeps me awake some nights thinking about how do we prepare our students to go to the nations. This is Acts 19, verse 11 and following. Let me read the text to you. And even as, even as I do that, I want us to be ever mindful that what we're about to do, to open the scriptures in front of us, in our language, in their entirety, and we can read these together without threat of our lives is something that an awful lot of people around the world cannot do tonight. And so we don't take this for granted. Listen to the word of the Lord. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had the evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, and then do you remember the next words? But what? Who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Go back with me to this story. Paul is in the city of Ephesus, a pagan city. The New Testament scholar Clint Arnold says it was the center of magical arts. And yet God is doing extraordinary miracles there at the hands of Paul, miracles that were not of the ordinary kind. But God is working in such mighty ways that, that people are using sweat rags, work aprons that had touched the skin of the Apostle Paul and using those that others might be healed through those. Not, not by any means was God giving us some healing methodology, not at all. Well, what God was doing was graciously validating the message of Paul for the people of his day. And in any capacity, what the text tells us is that it wasn't the handkerchief, it wasn't the work apron, it wasn't the sweat rag, it was God who healed. God's working in mighty ways and coming into that city were itinerant Jewish exorcists who were traveling through the cities to cast out demons, going about to take on the demons. And often they did so in their culture. Often they did so with magical incantations and name-centered formulas that they would use their magic to try to take on demonic forces. Likely to earn their income. And so they do this with an end in mind. They would use their magic toward that end. And they've heard this, that the Apostle Paul has power. The Apostle Paul can speak in the name of Jesus, and when he speaks, God works in, in mighty ways, and they want that power. They want that authority. And they attempt to tap into that power as these exorcists say to demonic spirits, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And ultimately, they seek to reduce the power of God to a formula. In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. 
They seek to manipulate God by the right magical words, and this time the demon speaks back. Jesus, I know. Well, of course they knew Jesus. He's the Son of God. In fact, you read the gospel sometimes and watch, watch the encounters that Jesus has with the demons and, and watch who speaks first. It's most often the demon who speaks and says something like, we know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. What are you going to do to us? Don't throw us into the abyss because they know when Jesus shows up, they're done for. They know Jesus. Paul, I recognize. Paul, I know. I'm acquainted with Paul because he's that, that apostle extraordinaire that if you were with us last night, Dr. Quarles spoke about his life. The apostle Paul taking the gospel to the center of the Roman Empire and willing to die for that work. And the demon says, I know him too. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. And the demon acknowledges the Son of God and the apostle doing God's work, but not the exorcist. Not the exorcist, and certainly not their magical power. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? If I can loosely paraphrase this text, the demon says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know, but you don't scare me. And the reason this text so grabs me is that I look at the needs of the world and the cry of the nations and the darkness of, of the people we're trying to reach. You, you heard our student talk about looking across graves of people who do not know Jesus. And I think about the need to get the gospel there. And I look at our churches in North America, by far the vast majority not growing. And yet we, we keep going through the motions, and I wonder if the demons say to us, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, and you just keep on doing what you're doing because you don't worry me anyway. And I, I, want, I want our students, I want our students so walking with God that hell knows them by name. I want them, I want them planting churches I want them planting churches that make hell shake a little bit. I want to know when they go out that hell knows they exist. But that's our task. The demon said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And this man in whom the, the demons resided beats up the exorcist and casts them out of the house naked and wounded, greatly humiliated in that culture. And it would, it would seem as if the demon won there. But not so, because you see, the demons acknowledged who Jesus, Jesus this Jesus we know. 
And God in his sovereign, powerful display turns that all on its ear, the whole picture on its ear. Because God uses this demon-possessed man to beat up the exorcist to show them just how utterly powerless they are. None of their magic can stand up to the power of God. And the result is this. The name of Jesus is magnified. Even so much so that, that some believers who apparently were still holding on to their magical arts, who still had not grown enough in their faith to let go of that, who are still holding on to a little bit of syncretism, they bring their syncretism out of the darkness and say, we don't need this power anymore. And they burn their magic books, no small price. And then the text says this, and I read it again. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. More literally, the word of God spread in power. So into the city come these professional exorcists trying to tap into the power. The power is the power of the word of God. And it prevails mightily. So what do we, what do, we do with all this? I listen to the stories that you just heard. Church planters and pastors and missionaries struggling hard to do the work that God's called them to do. And knowing, knowing that Paul tells us we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Knowing that Peter warns us there's an enemy who seeks to devour us. That James tells us we must, we must submit to God and resist this enemy. What do we do with all this? I want us sending out men and women who make hell shake. Uh, I want to say personally, thank you for, for loving us, for loving Southeastern, for supporting us, for giving that we might do what God's called us to do. And even as you do that, I would, I would plead with you tonight to put us on your prayer list. Because the task that God has called all of us to do is a task that not one of us can do in our own ability. So I would ask you to pray with us. And pray with us. Here's how I think about this as I look at this text. Pray with us that God will use us first to produce students that really do make hell shake. Let us, let us teach. We want them to know the Word of God. We want them to know the Scriptures. We want them to know their languages. We want them to understand church history and learn the lessons that others have learned before us. We want them to know their missiology. And may God help us to do all that better than anybody else does it. But at the end of the day, we also need students who so walk with Jesus, who so love Jesus, who are so obedient to Jesus, who so lift up Jesus, and who so proclaim Jesus to their neighbors and the nations that hell shakes when we gather. And if, and if the enemy says today, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Let it not be because Southeastern Seminary has failed. Pray, please pray with us. Pray with us that God would help us to raise up students who make hell shake. Then second, pray with us, please, that, that our students would know how important holy living is. 
And that we would model that as professors and administrators and as trustees and as friends of Southeastern Seminary to dare take on the enemy without wearing the full armor of God is dangerous indeed. In fact, it's stupid. That's what these exorcists did. They try to tap into the power without the armor of God on them and look at what happens to them. And even these apparent believers in the latter part of this story who are still holding on syncretistically to some of their past, and we're sending students to places where that's happening everywhere, where young believers are trying to figure out, how do I trust Jesus while, while struggling with letting go of their past? When we send our students out, let's make sure they go out knowing this. They must go out to teach the Word of God while living the Word of God in their lives. We want to send them out knowing that if they're holding their Bible in one hand but holding on to yesterday's sin in their other hand, they weaken the very witness that they carry with them. So, so pray with us that we would send out men and women who walk in holiness. And then pray with us third. Pray with us third that our students, and we for that matter, would never take on the enemy on the basis of somebody else's power. Pray with us that our students would never take on the enemy on the basis of somebody else's power. That's what the exorcists tried to do. And they failed miserably. Now I recognize that the comparison between non-believing exorcists and our believing students falls apart a little bit here, but, but yet we can still learn. Pray with me, please, that our students would not assume that they have power just because they preach like somebody else or sound like somebody else or even dress like somebody else. And every one of us preachers in this room has been there at some point, yes? Because when we do that, we're facing the enemy on the basis of somebody else's power. Pray with me that our students would not assume that if they can just speak the right words and use the right definitions and fit into the right theological box that they will necessarily have power. Pray with me that they'll recognize that if they're only riding the backs of their theological heroes apart from their own walk with God, they will not have power. Pray with, pray with me that our students would not face today's battles on the basis of yesterday's power. And we do that too. When we evaluate our own spiritual walk and we look back, I think about the apostles in, in the Gospel of Mark and we read about they're going out on a missionary journey and God's using them and they're casting out demons and, and God's working mightily through them. And then we come forward in the story and we come to Mark 9 where they try to cast out a demon and they can't get it done. And Jesus said, you can't do this unless you pray. And so apparently, they're facing that battle on the basis of yesterday's victory. 
Pray, pray with us that we would help our students learn from yesterday, but walk in God's power today. Pray, pray with us. Pray with us that our students would know that if they want to be empowered by God to do the tasks to which they are called, church planters and pastors and missionaries, North American missionaries, international missionaries, Pray with us that, that we would help them see and we would recognize in our own lives. If we desire to have the power of God in us and that God uses us to spread his word mightily, that that will come out of the genuine overflow of our walk with God. Pray with us that we would all recognize that, that we'll find the power of God when God has driven us to our faces when God has worked us over through his word, and God has brought us to repentance, and when we recognize that the only way we really do the work God has called us to do is to do it on our knees. And when it's not somebody else's faith, it's not somebody else's story, it's not somebody else's power, it's God's power flowing through his righteous men and women. Pray with us, pray with us that our students would not take on the enemy on the basis of somebody else's power. Pray with us that we would not have a single student or graduate beaten up by the demons because our students lack the power of God. And then finally, I would ask you to pray with us. Pray with us that our students would be willing to pay the cost of the devil's knowing our name. Pray that they would be willing to pay the cost of the devil's knowing our name. In this story, the exorcists pay a little bit of a cost. They're beaten up, sent out of that house naked and wounded. But there are other names in this story. Jesus, the Son of God, who would break the back of the powers by his death. And then there is the Apostle Paul, buffeted about, a messenger of Satan, a thorn, a thorn we read in 2 Corinthians 12. And then the Apostle Paul who would live out his life, but he would pay the ultimate price. The apostles of whom it's written, they turned the cities upside down, and yet they would die for the sake of the gospel. Would the demons know their name? Yes. Would it cost them their lives? Yes. But here's our calling. It is to wear the full armor of God, to go offensively into the darkness with the light of the gospel, and to live our life in the power of God, and should God so demand it, we die in the full armor of God. It is that student, it is that graduate, it is that faculty member, it is that administrator, it is that trustee, it is that friend of Southeastern Seminary, it is that believer who cares enough about getting the gospel to the lost that he or she would give up his own life for the glory of God. It is that believer that makes hell shake. And I think, I think tonight about our brothers and sisters 
murdered by ISIS. You read the stories. Ethiopian believers giving up their life. You know what? It is that believer willing to pay that price who threatens hell. It is also that same believer who prays for his murderers as he dies that threatens hell. And that's the kind of student I want to send out. Who's willing to pay the price. And so long for lost people to know Jesus that they will pray as they die. Lord, save them. That's why this text haunts me. God's been good to us. But I want to make sure that at the end of the day, all that we do, all that we do results in our sending out men and women. So empowered and so walking in God that the demons would say, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize him. And those people at that seminary in Wake Forest and all the students they have the privilege of teaching around the world, those folks there, they're getting under my skin too. May God let it be. Let's pray together. Father, Father, thank you for all that you are doing through Southeastern Seminary. Thank you for our president, for our leaders, for our faculty, for the students you send to us, for our trustees who help guide us, our friends and supporters who give sacrificially that we can do this work. But Father, help us. Help us not to just go through the motions. Help us not to just do what we do because we're supposed to do it. And Father, beginning with me, beginning with each of us in this room, make us a people who would walk away from those hidden sins in our lives. Make us a people who would long to be used of you. And God, in your power, send us to our neighbors. Send us to the nations. Arm us, God, with your armor. And I pray that even as we have met here this night and as our president speaks to us, I pray, I pray, God, that hell would shake just a little bit more And may Christ be glorified. May the gospel be spread. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me begin by saying that uh, my uh, comments will be very brief. Um, this afternoon, someone gave a word of commendation to Southeastern about just the passion, the spirit here with respect to the Great Commission. And God has done it. No one else could have given us the heart that we have and the passion that we have. It's something that God 
in his amazing grace has given to us. But it's fascinating to see how he has done that. Uh, for example, uh, as most of you know, the provost of our school is Dr. Bruce Ashford. He's one of the first two plus two graduates and a former IMB missionary. Dr. Lawless, who just spoke to us, has been a vice president at the International Mission Board, and we still, in some sense, share him with the IMB, though he is the dean of the graduate school at Southeastern. Then you think of our wonderful theology department and the person that is the senior member there, John Hammett, a former IMB missionary who teaches theology. Then we go to last night when we heard as fine of a message as you'll ever hear from Acts chapter 20, and uh, the preacher, Dr. Chuck Quarles, a former IMB missionary. Then you keep walking through our very wonderful New Testament department, and you come across a man named Ben Merkel, uh, who has uh, distinguished himself very quickly, both as a writer and a teacher. And for a decade, he also was an IMB missionary. Then you jump over into our Old Testament department, and there you find a man by the name of Todd Borger, and once more, a former IMB missionary. Now, these are people that have served on the field that are in non-missionary disciplines. I see George Robinson sitting out here, and yes, he teaches missions and evangelism, uh, and a former IMB missionary. And then in our mission department, we have Scott Hildreth and Greg Mathias, both also former International Mission Board missionaries. You kind of expect that, and then Al James, don't want to leave Al out. But you think about the fact that God in his goodness has brought to us an Old Testament scholar, two New Testament scholars, uh, a theology scholar, and uh, our provost and our dean, who all have a heart for the nations. And it's because in God's goodness he has brought us such quality people like that, that indeed we challenge our students not to pray, Lord, should I go, but Lord, why should I stay? You see, to go is the default mode around here at Southeastern Seminary. I want to close my time tonight, and then we're going to sing as we do dismiss. And I want to say again, thank you so much to Christian and the team that came up from First Baptist Church, West Palm Beach, or the family church. You can pick either name that you like. Charlotte and I have had the joy of being down there on a number of occasions because that's the same church that our youngest son, Tim, uh, is serving as a teaching pastor. So we've enjoyed uh, their gift for music uh, many, many times. And so even before they lead us in our last two songs, would you say thank you to them for how they have blessed us this evening? I did not know exactly what uh, Dr. Lawless was going to say, but as I was thinking through the brief comments I would make tonight, and as most of you know, I love missionary biographies. Uh, two particular statements from two different missionaries came to my mind and to my heart, and I think they are a, a good complement to what uh, Chuck has just said. One comes from a man, one comes from a lady. Both of them, from my perspective, died way too soon. The man, Henry Martin, died at the age of 31. Uh, the woman, Harriet Newell, died at 19. And Henry Martin, a brilliant linguist, 
an intellectual giant that God again took at the age of 31 said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more missionary we will become. And you know, I think there's a sense in which the reverse of that is true. The more missionary-minded we are, the closer we're going to get to Jesus. You see, I want our students to be close to Christ, and I want our faculty to be close to Christ. I want our staff to be close to Christ. I want all of you to be close to Christ. I want to be close to Him. And I'm absolutely convinced that the more missionary-minded I am, and the more passionate I am for the nations, I cannot help but be drawn closer to the one who said, I came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. I came to seek and save that which is lost. The nearer we get to Christ, the more missionary-minded we will become. And then Harriet Newell, the first American missionary to die on the international field. She never even got to her mission field. She never made it. She got married. She got pregnant. She delivered a baby boy on the floor of the ship that they were traveling to their country. The baby died. She died just a few weeks later. But just before she left to go to the nations in her uh, journal, she wrote, and I quote, Providence now gives me opportunity to go myself to the lost. Shall I refuse the offer? Shall I love the glittering toys of this dying world so well that I cannot relinquish them for my God? Forbid it heaven, yes, I will go. However weak and unqualified I am, there is an all-sufficient Savior ready to support me. In God alone is my hope. I will trust his promises and consider it one of the highest privileges that could be conferred upon me to be permitted to engage in his glorious service among the inhabitants of India. She wrote those words at the age of 17. And then knowing that uh, she was going to die, in the final letter that she wrote to her mother, she simply said, and I quote, tell them, assure them that I approve on my dying bed the course I have taken. I have never repented leaving all for Christ. And might it be that we could join with Harriet Newell and say, I approve on my dying bed the course I have taken. I have never regretted I have never repented, leaving all for Christ. Christian, you all come and lead us as we close out tonight, worshiping the Lord by singing. <laughs>